All right, we can get everybody going back to your seat. Uh, I make sure we got all the kids out to Children's Church. Uh, let's all come back, if you don't mind. And uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Man, so good to be with you today. Truly, truly is. Uh, we just kind of wanted to change up the order of service today because we had a couple of things we kind of wanted to uh, kind of address a little bit. And then uh, we just felt like it would kind of, the things we were going to talk about today would really like lead in well to uh, kind of moving our hearts toward worship. So we're going to have time of teaching, time of communion. Then we're going to close our service today with a really sweet time of worship. Really looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, there, there, there are times in our lives, Michael kind of already alluded to this, but there are times in our lives that we just have to have like a holy resolve to just really like lean in hard to the things that we know about God, the things that we know about his word, the things we know about God's attributes, the things we know about God's actions in the past, and just leaning hard into the confidence that we have in Christ. And so Romans chapter 8, I want to ask you to go back in time to about 54 AD. I want you to imagine a 50-year-old man. He looks older than he is because the past 20 years of his life have been very, very hard. A lot of suffering. He's traveled thousands of miles on foot. He's been flogged. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. He's been imprisoned many times. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been shipwrecked, beaten with fists time and time again. And his body is scarred. He's, he's what you'd call a weathered man. It's Paul the Apostle. And he's spending the winter in Corinth with friends. He has no home of his own. But once the winter passes, he's going to resume his travels again, going around the world to places no one has ever been before to share the message of Christ and the salvation that comes in Jesus. And there's a large community of Christians in Rome. They're very concerned about the future. Just like many of us here today, they're looking around the world. And there's so much chaos, so much depravity, so much pain in the world. And we're all concerned, just like the people of Rome were, with good reason. What happened to them was that they have someone becoming their emperor. His name is Nero. And all of Rome is shuddering. You know, what's our future going to be? People knew that this uh, Nero was corrupt. He was unhinged. He was given over to legendary debauchery. He's a madman. And he's taking the Roman throne. He's only 16 years old. You know, we're concerned about somebody being in their late 70s, early 80s. Imagine having somebody who's 16 becoming president, something like that. And so Paul feels prompted by the Spirit of God to write them a letter. And then something remarkable happens. When he goes to put pen to paper, he writes down something here that we're going to look at today that has literally changed the world. And that does happen sometimes in history when someone will write something. And it is so profound. It's so utterly God that you know no human mind would ever put such words to paper. And so we call this section of Romans chapter 8, and Paul is speaking about the security of our Christian salvation. Title today is, It's All Good. You see, this tension and anxiety hangs thick in the air all around the Roman world. It's a really dark time, and everyone's thinking the same thing. You know, what does the future hold for us? And a lot of you know it's been a really, really hard week around here. There have been a lot of those thoughts in my mind. You know, what does the future hold for us? And the Spirit of God inspires Paul to write these words, which are really the fulcrum or the centerpiece of Paul's letter to the Romans. And he wrote this. We know that God causes, God causes all things, all things to work together for good to those who love God, 
to those who are called according to his purpose. I put the New American Standard up because that's what I memorized back when I was younger. I just want you to imagine you're waiting in a small stream in Colorado and you see this big gold nugget sitting there right there. You go, wow. And you go and you think, I can't believe it. That's kind of what this verse of scripture is. It's like a big hunk of precious metal in the stream of the words of God to man. Millions of followers of Jesus over thousands of years have clung to this statement for hope and for strength. It just happens to be where we are today in our study of Romans at this particular time. Perhaps the greatest promise anywhere in the word of God. And it deserves our close attention. And one of the things about it, if you pick up a gold nugget or you know something like that, it's, it, has what, it has what's called a high specific gravity. It's just really heavy for its size. You know, it's so dense. And that's kind of the truth here, that this is so heavy. This is so dense. And so today we're going to break this one incredible verse of Scripture down phrase by phrase. The first thing you see is Paul says, we know. We know. You see, our hope, uh, our hope in life, our stamina, our endurance, our resilience, it's not based on wishful thinking, you know, natural optimism, all right, wishing upon a star. Our sense of stamina and hope in this life is based on objective truth, what we know to be the reality of our lives. Some things we can be certain of based upon the historical evidence of God's actions in the past and God's attributes in the present. And when life gets hard, this is very important. God's people don't go guess. We don't go guessing. All right? We know. We know. As David said in Psalm chapter 20, this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power at his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The second thing is he said, God causes. God causes. All right. If you think about God as the great cause, all right, God causes. All right. You know, God is the great cause of everything. Back when I was a youth pastor, I had a kind of reputation for creating some really great games. In reality, there are only a few that were really great. Most of the time when I'd plan something for the kids, it would uh, really go badly. You know, somebody would get hurt. You know, uh, someone was crying. Uh, usually it was me because it went so poorly. I'd always be the same thing. I would tell one of my interns, you know, when I planned this game, I saw it going a lot better than this, you know. Look at this from Isaiah chapter 14. Things will happen as I plan. Things will be as I determine. Because I, the God of earth and heaven, have devised a plan for the whole earth. And the eternal commander of heavenly armies has determined that this is how it should be and so it will be. You know, God's proper name in the Bible is Yahweh. And in your, in your English Bible, it's always translated Lord. And that word Lord is used 7,000 times in your Bible as a name for God. He's a ruler, he's a king, he's a sovereign. So we talk about the sovereignty of God. We're talking about the fact that Yahweh is the king over all creation, over all circumstances, over all happenings. He is king. And so we're discussing the lordship of God when we talk about the sovereignty of God. In Psalm chapter 135, we read this. I know this, the Lord is great. His power is unmatched. He does whatever he pleases in heaven on earth, in the seas, and in all the ocean depths. And so as sovereign, God exercises his rule and authority over not just some things, but all things. 
When we talk about God's sovereignty, we mean that his power is such is that he alone is the great cause. And scripture tells us again and again that God rules over all. There's nothing beyond his power to control. And God's power is such that he can, he can manage and he can maneuver every minutia of our lives to make his holy will become a reality. And your life and mine are not the result of random chance, fate, or luck. And we don't ever want to go out there as God's people and say, well, it is what it is. No, we say it is as God has planned. It is as God has planned. Jeremiah chapter 29. We all have this probably somewhere in our home. You may have it on a magnet on your refrigerator. You may have it up on the wall somewhere. You may have it as a screensaver on your phone. For the Lord says... When the 70 years of Babylonian rule are over, I will take consideration for you and I will fulfill my gracious promise and restore you to your homeland. For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. Jeremiah spoke these words inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to people who had been ripped from their homeland and taken in exile to Babylon. A false prophet named Hananiah had told these people, hey, two more years, you're going to get to go home. And God speaks to his true prophet, Jeremiah, and said, no, you're going to live there 70 years. It's going to be 70 years. So settle down, build a home, get married, have a family, and prosper the city, Babylon, where you find yourself. He said, don't lose heart. There's not an immediate escape, but there is an ultimate escape. God says, I have a plan. I have a plan. So whatever you may be going through in the present, whatever we may be going through as a church in the present, we have to know that we know that God is going to cause it to prosper us in the ultimate. No matter what the present looks like or feels like, no matter how impossible it seems, you can be sure that a glorious future awaits those who are in covenant with God Almighty. And we, if we know Christ is our Savior, we are in covenant with God. It's a faith covenant. It's a covenant by faith. And if you're in covenant with God, he has plans that will prosper you in the future. And the third thing you see there is all things. All things. Yeah, I think the most, Romans 8, 28 is the most amazing promise anywhere in your Bible. And it's because of that, that little bitty word with three letters. It's so packed with power. It's like the Wolverine of the Bible, right? Just a tiny little thing packed with power. All means all. God's plan for your life and mine includes all that happens to us. Things that we can never imagine that God could use. He somehow engineers from bad to good. God's sovereign power, his wisdom extends over everything no matter how bad it might look, no matter how bad it is, no matter how bad it seems, God can overrule things that are evil, things that are vile, things that are painful, and work them out for our good and ultimately our future glory. You know, there are three broad categories when you read your Bible of things that God works out for good over and over again in the lives of his covenant people. The first one is suffering. You know, suffering has many causes. But through it all, God achieves a good result. And the most important is that God uses suffering to draw us near to him because it humbles us. 
there was a king in ancient Israel named Manasseh. And he was an idolater. He was a terrible man. He led Israel away from God. And Israel got so bad, the nation of Israel was actually worse than their pagan neighbors. And so I'm, I just want to, I'll show you the scripture, but I'll just kind of summarize it for you. God sent the Assyrian army there and they took Manasseh prisoner. And the Bible says they put a ring through his nose. I can't imagine that. I mean, I know sometimes people do it, you know, on purpose, but that was not on purpose. And they bound him in chains. They led him away to Babylon. And the Bible says that he was in deep distress and he sought the Lord, his God, and he sincerely humbled himself before God. And God heard him and God responded to his humbled heart. And he came back. He was, he was given a chance to come back to his homeland. And when he came back to his homeland, he became one of the great kings in Israel's history. He tore down the idols. He rebuilt the infrastructure of Jerusalem. He rebuilt the military of Jerusalem. And he ended so, so well, but only came after God had used suffering to humble his proud and arrogant heart. God used it for good. The other one is sorrow. You know, if... Uh, sin had not been introduced into our world, there would be no sorrow, grief, tears, or pain. But all of us have had it happen. You get the news and you just feel the blood just drain from your body. I had that experience this week when you get that news and you just feel the blood just drain from your face. There's a powerful story in 2 Kings. There's a good king this time. His name Hezekiah and he was ill. And the Lord spoke to the prophet Isaiah. He said, I want you to go to the king And I want you to tell him that this is terminal. There's no hope for him. He needs to get his affairs in order. And the Bible says that when Hezekiah heard this, he turned his face to the wall and he prayed. I can't imagine how he prayed. Remember, O Lord, how I've always been faithful to you and have served you single-mindedly, always doing what pleases you. Then he broke down and wept bitterly. You see what happened there? Through his sorrow, Hezekiah's heart was broken. And he prayed as if he had never prayed before. So there are times that God is going to allow sorrow into our lives because it draws us near to him because we realize I can't make it on my own. I just need God. And somehow sorrow just pierces the armor that we build up the scales over our hearts and we are able to finally humble ourselves before God and truly seek him. And the last one is sins. This is the one that's hardest for me to wrap my mind around, honestly. If you're like me, you might say, you know, I can understand how God could use something like sorrow or suffering and bring good out of it, but sin. You know, sin is an act of rebellion to God. It's an act of defiance. How on earth could God ever use someone's sin for good? In Job chapter 11, Job said this, Can you discover God's hidden secrets or are able to find the Almighty's limits? God's wisdom is higher than heaven. What can you do is deeper than the depths of hell. What can you know? It is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. You know, all sin is evil. It's wretched. It's destructive. Sin put the Son of God on the cross. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good, even sins. It may not seem possible, but God's power is somehow able to overrule and reverse engineer even the effects of sin. God and God alone is able to reverse engineer the sin that we do, but also the sin that's done to us. And somehow, 
in His power and His wisdom and His love, bring good out of it. And it may not be in the immediate future, but we can be certain that it will be so in the ultimate future. Again, you go far back in your Bible. There's a young man named Joseph. A lot of you know this story from Sunday school. Some of you may not be very familiar, but Joseph was very, very gifted by God. And he had a very, very vivid dream that someday he was going to be a great leader. And he told his brothers about this vivid dream that he'd had. And it so infuriated his brothers because their father's favoritism, et cetera, et cetera, that they actually grabbed their brother. They basically kidnapped him and they sold him into slavery. He was put on a caravan and taken far away from his homeland to Egypt, sold into slavery by his own family. And while he was there, he was wrongfully accused of rape by a a vile and evil woman. And so he was thrown in prison. Combined, Joseph spent 13 years of his life in slavery and in prison because of the sins of others. And God worked through the sins of his brothers and the woman who accused him and the circumstances came about that he was actually elevated to become the prime minister, the second in command of Egypt, the greatest empire in the world at that time. And a great famine struck the world. Joseph's brothers who had, who had betrayed him had come to Egypt looking for food and Joseph revealed his identity to him. They, they hadn't seen him in 17 or 18 years. They were stunned and they said, it's not possible. From shepherd to slave, then from prison to palace, that just doesn't happen. How is that even possible? No human mind could even imagine that story. And Joseph told him, he said, when his brothers threw themselves down before him, they said, we are your slaves. Isn't that ironic? They had sold him into slavery. And here they are less than 20 years later, bowing down to him. We are your slaves. It's incredible how God can turn the tables. And we see this over and over again. And the cross is the greatest evidence of how God can take the sins of humanity and just turn the tables completely and reverse everything that we thought would would happen and, and should have happened. And he said, don't be afraid. You intended to harm me. You sinned against me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You know, when I see what sin does to people, what my sin does to me, a holy hatred just rises up in my heart. Sin deserves eternal hell. And one day it will be there. And one day that will be true. But until that day arrives, I can be absolutely certain that God can even take sin and somehow bring good from it in the ultimate. Because the next thing that Paul says is that all things work together. Work together. You see, the things in our lives, they don't work independently. They don't work uh, separately. And you or I never really given the permission to categorize and compartmentalize our lives. You know, God was working here. That was a great time. God was absent over there because that was really hard. The events in your life and mine work together. They are an interdependent part of a greater process. Look at that word work together for a moment. It is literally the word synergy, right? We say synergy around here. People automatically start thinking about nachos and movies, but that's not what it means, okay? It means to cooperate with in the original Greek. When one thing magnifies or amplifies another, when two things work together and produce a more powerful effect than they would separately. 
There's not one moment in your life that goes by that God is not at work in your life for good. Some awful, painful things crash into our lives and God never takes a break. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. God is always at work, always. John 5, 17, Jesus said, my father has never ceased working. He is still working and I too must be at work. All the things that happen in your life and mine, God uses these things to amplify all the others, to magnify all the others. They're all interdependent. The bad things magnify the good things. And there's a a synergistic effect of all the things that happen in our lives. Maybe it's loneliness, stress, rejection, criticism, betrayal, failure. God uses it all for our good. Hebrews 12.10 says, God is doing what's best for us training us to live God's holy best. Now, I don't, I don't know how you feel about tomatoes. I can't stand tomatoes, <laughs> right? I know, maybe I'm kind of weird, but you know that, that kind of jelly around the seeds, I call it death gel. You know, I just, ugh. I cannot stand tomatoes. And uh, I, wanted to, I didn't have time to go to the grocery store this morning, but I was gonna get all these ingredients. But imagine if I had up here a big tomato, an onion, a jalapeno pepper, and a clove of garlic. You know, all those things by themselves, you know, if you're to eat a clove of garlic, you know, your wife would never talk to you ever again, all right? And it would be really vile. The same thing if you ate, you know, an onion. Some of you, and eat a jalapeno pepper. Now, some of you are psychos, you'd probably enjoy that, all right? But most of us wouldn't. But if I take all those things and I put them in a blender and I hit it on, I put it on high, what do I get? I get salsa. I love salsa. It's amazing. I mean, it changed my life when I first had it back in college. And, you know, somehow God, you know, every, separately, each of those things are really, really bad and even painful, even harmful. And yet when I put them all together, somehow they, there's a synergistic effect. They, they magnify, they amplify, and they transmogrify, whatever. And all of a sudden I have this really good thing. And that's the ultimate good that God is bringing out of our lives. And that is, brings us to for good, for good. You know, my daughter, Hannah, she, uh, wanted to get a ring for graduation from tech. And I still had my tech class ring. And I had a ring that my dad had gotten when you know, he retired from his, uh, from his union. And my dad was part of a union for many, many years. And so I told Hannah, I said, here, take these two rings, take them to the jeweler, because I don't wear my tech ring anymore. I said, take these to the jeweler and uh, ask him if he'll kind of melt them down and get the gold from them. And then she came back and she brought my dad's union ring back. And she said, yeah, the jeweler said there's really not enough gold in here to even warrant uh, melting it down, you know? And the gold veneer was so thin. You know, dad's union ring, it looks good on the outside, but in reality, it's basically worthless because what's on the inside. When Paul uses the word good here, there are two common words in the Greek for good. One is the word kalos. It means something's nice to look at. It looks good on the outside. Like, hey, that's a good looking car. Or like my dad's ring. But the word Paul uses here is the word agathos. Agathos. And it means that something is inherently good. It's good throughout. Kind of like my tech ring. In Job chapter 23. Yeah, amen, amen. Job said this, he knows the road that I take. He has concern for it. And he pays attention to it. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as refined gold, pure 
and luminous. You know, man, I just believe that. I just believe that. I know there, I, I, you know, going around the room this morning, I, I know I say this every once in a while. You know, I walk around the room and I try to greet as many as I can before the service starts. And I just think about all the things that all of y'all are dealing with. And I know not everybody knows everybody's story, but I know a lot of your stories, you know. And I know it's so, so hard right now. And then like the things that we've heard about this week, it's just so hard sometimes. But just think about that. In eternal glory, the ultimate, conformed to the image of Christ, pure and luminous. I just believe that with all my soul. I've seen it. I've seen it at work in my life. I've seen it work in my family. And I haven't seen the ultimate. I have seen it sometimes in the immediate. It's a beautiful thing to behold. How God can take suffering and pain and heartache and confusion and somehow work it to refine us, refine our very soul and make us into someone different than we had been. Paul is not trying to imply here that everything in life is good. Bad things are bad things. That is not what he's saying. But no matter what happens in our lives, God has an infinite capacity to bring good out of it. And what a staggering thought that is. It is so far-reaching, so far-reaching, so reassuring. What else could bring us more hope, more joy, more confidence, more strength, resilience, or stamina, knowing that all the pain, all the problems, all the trouble, all, all of it, God is using to make us truly good when we reach his glory in heaven. And the last thing is this, love God. You know, this verse in Romans has kind of two parts to it. It's like, you know, there, you know it's, there, there's, a, there's the part that's, you know, describes, you know, what's going to happen, but then there's the part that describes who it happens for. And what gets quoted most often is, hey, God works all things together for good. And you hear people say that all the time, and you know, there's shouts of amen, shouts of praise. But this promise is not for everyone. There's a major condition added onto this promise. And when a person without Christ says, hey, it's all good, all things work for good, it may not be true for you. Do you love God? Do you love God? You see, all things work out for the bad for those who oppose God and are called to their own purpose. Let's just be honest. See, there must be a trust relationship with God. There's a level of trust in every love relationship. See, trusting Jesus as your Savior, putting your faith in Jesus, it's an act of love. It truly is. And I know I've shared this before, but I think it's appropriate here. You know, I asked Melanie to marry me approximately uh, 30 Two years ago? Got it. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, we're out there on the edge of Powder Canyon, you know, and what if Melanie had a time machine? And I got down on one knee there at the edge of Powder Canyon. I said, Melanie, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you, will you marry me? And she said, let me, let me get over here for a minute. She has a DeLorean sitting over there. She goes zipping down the canyon, right? And she goes forward 32 years. And she's like, looks at it and she says, you know, you're going to put on about 50 pounds. Your hair is going to turn white. You know, not going to make a lot of money. Comes back in the DeLorean, comes back. Nah, Les, I'm not feeling it. Sorry. <laughs> you know, but what did she do that day? She said, I'm putting my trust in you. I, I mean, I, I trust you because I love you. 
There's always an element of trust in every love relationship. Isaiah 64, from long ago, no ears ever heard of a God like you. No eye has ever seen a God beside you who acts on behalf of the people who trust you. When you trust God, you love God. When you love God, you trust God. And the last thing is those who are called according to his purpose. What purpose is Paul talking about here? It's the ultimate purpose God has for every person who puts their trust in Jesus as their Savior. This calling that you and I have in our lives to be conformed to the image of Jesus. The very next verse, Paul says this, God knew what he's doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. That's the ultimate. We don't always understand why things happen the way they do in this lifetime, on this earth, in this reality, but the day will come that it will all change and everything will be different. And we know that when that time comes, there will be a purity, there will be a luminosity, there will be a glory because we will be shaped into the lives of the firstborn of many brethren, Jesus himself. So, you know, we don't often get things the way that we wanted, the way that we hoped for, the way we planned for, what we worked so hard to get. Life sometimes is exactly the opposite of what we thought it should be or even could be. And this promise, by the way, doesn't shield you and me from that. It doesn't shield us from disappointment, hurt, regret, feelings of betrayal doesn't shield us from that. But Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, you know, that young man Nero, when he got to be in his 20s, he went completely insane. He had Peter arrested. He had Peter crucified upside down. Then the people rejoiced over that. So he had Paul arrested and he has Paul in prison. And Paul says, could I write another letter? And they said, sure, but we're going to cut off your head here in a few days. And he said this to Timothy, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. You see, the Christian life is not so much about what we believe. That's very important. We have our doctrines. We have our creeds. We have our confessions. Absolutely. But the Christian life is more about who we believe. Our living Savior, Jesus. And the doctrines, the creeds, the confessions are they are an expression of a greater belief, a belief in the person, Jesus, who died for me, God made flesh, who came and lived among us, dwelt among us, died on the cross for my sins, and was raised from the dead into incredible glory, seated at the right hand of the Father. And so I want you to leave, I want to leave you with this. I know some of us like math. Here's how I like to look at this verse of scripture. Infinite power plus infinite wisdom, multiplied by infinite love. All things work together for good. Infinite power, plus infinite wisdom, multiplied by infinite love. All things in your life and mine, if you love God and are called according to his purpose, working for good. And so sometimes we don't understand why things happen the way they do. What do we do? We lean in hard. We lean hard into what we know is true. 
about God's work in the world, God's work in our own lives. Let's bow our heads together this morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to ask you to go before the Lord this morning and just ask him to give you that trust today. That trust that we spoke about, that trust that is a uh, indispensable part of a love relationship with God. And I know there may be lots of different reasons that you might need more trust in God today. It may be because of some things that happened this week. It may be because of some things that have been happening in your life for a long time. But I just want to ask you to go before the Lord and just say, Lord, would you just please give me just that, that, that trust today. I can just trust you at all times and all things. I can just trust you, Lord. Like I've never trusted you before. So I just want to ask you to go before the Lord. Speak to him about your trust relationship this morning. Let's just do that for a moment. Here in a few minutes, we're going to move into a time of communion together. And as we're moving into that time of communion, I just want to ask you to, Pause for a moment. You know, the Apostle Paul said that anytime we enter into this time of communion and reflect on it, that we ought to examine our own hearts. This is such an appropriate time for you and I to go before the Lord and just have a time of confession. Confess to the Lord our doubts, our fears, our anxieties. Maybe not just those overt sins, although we need to do that as well, but Perhaps as much just the state of our own heart in the past week or two. Maybe your heart's been wrought with fear or anxiety or anger, bitterness, regret, whatever it might be. Just go before the Lord this morning. Make your heart right with the Lord. Confess those things to Him today. Make your heart right for a time of communion, the Lord's Supper today. Lord Jesus, we do want to press hard into you today. And Lord, I know that there are many of us here today that our hearts are so heavy. But Lord, you are the lifter of our heads. Lord, you are gentle and humble in heart. And we just thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you are all these things to us. And we just ask you, Lord, to come now. And I just pray, Lord, that in every seat where every person is seated today, Lord, that you just meet them where they are. And Lord, just let them know your deep love for them, your affection for them, the wisdom and the work and the power that you are bringing to bear upon their lives today. I pray, Lord, they would just know this today. Teach us to trust you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.